When our, when our son, Justin, was a young boy, maybe about five, he had a funny conversation with his uncle at our house uh, while his aunt was recording it with a camcorder. Because it was the 80s, or it might have been 1990 or something, right? And that's what you had. You had camcorders. This, this, uh, this exchange has been forever memorialized in our family. It was Christmas time, and his uncle, having a bit of fun, asked Justin who Jesus' father was. And Justin knew enough to say emphatically and with certainty, God is his father. To which his uncle said, but isn't Joseph his father? Mary is his mother and Joseph's his father, right? And you could see Justin struggling with this. And so he kind of hesitantly, you know, agrees, okay, Joseph is his father. His uncle says, "So, so Jesus has two fathers then. And Justin says, no, he doesn't have a human father. He doesn't have a human father. God is the father, he kept saying. We have this on tape. God is the father. But what about Joseph? What about Joseph? His uncle keeps playing. And you can just see the frustration mounting. God is the father. And he's like, well, Joseph, I guess whatever. But there's no human father. What was needed, what was needed was our gospel text today which helps clarify the role and the importance of Joseph, and a whole lot more. It's the famous story of Christ's conception and birth. And here, in Matthew's Gospel, it is unsentimental, stripped down, especially if you compare it to Luke's story. Luke's is long, there's angels, there's shepherds, all this stuff going on. Matthew tells the whole story, like in six or seven verses. Luke focuses on Mary, Matthew focuses on Joseph telling the story from his point of view. So I'm not going to step through the text in order because it's very well known, but I'm going to make the three points that are there in the bulletin. The divine father, the human father, and the mission. And the mission. So first thing here, the divine father. Matthew has placed this story right after his genealogy. Right, The genealogy is the first 17 verses of the gospel, Chapter 1, verse 18, the birth of Christ. The genealogy and the text we're looking at here are both about the origin or the beginnings of Jesus Christ. But the genealogy ends with a problem. right? It starts with Abraham, it goes down through David, and it has this pattern. right? A is the father of B. And B is the father of C, and you get that pattern all the way down to Joseph, and there you read this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, of whom means of Mary, Jesus was born, who is the Christ. Right, And this way of putting things makes it clear that Joseph is a descendant of David, But he is not Jesus' biological father. And that alone should clue us into the fact that something different, something extraordinary really, is happening with this birth. 
And so that brings us to the opening of our text in verse 18. Matthew starts by saying this. This is how the birth. And the word for birth here is the same root word as verse 1 in the gospel that says this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Birth and genealogy are the same idea. So this is how the birth or the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Mary was betrothed or pledged to be married to Joseph. And before they came together, she's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. There's a sort of typology of of symbolism here that the, the Spirit who hovered over overshadowed the original creation, is the author of the new creation and will bring forth the author of life out of the virginal womb of Mary. It's a very familiar story, but what, it, what does it mean? Right? It means that the origin of Jesus needs not just a horizontal genealogy, right? not just a historical dimension, but it needs a vertical dimension. The origin of Jesus Christ recedes back, or shall we say it recedes up, into the infinite mystery of the being of God. This is a large part of why Christ himself is a mystery. right? Because the being of God is mysterious to us. This is why you can see and hear the Jesus of the Gospels, and he still always lies beyond our grasp somehow. He can't be captured. His origin recedes back into the infinite mystery of the being of God. The Father, then, who in the eternal being of the Godhead begets the Son, sends the Spirit to beget the human nature of the Son. And the Spirit, who is not male, who has no body, is the instrument of conception here. Asexually, of course, in the mystery of God's creative power. And this, by the way, is in stark contrast to other pagan myths where the gods would lust after and impregnate women. There is nothing of that here. The angel will say in verse 20, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And this descent, this overshadowing of the third person of the Holy Trinity in the person of the Spirit, right? It means that Jesus, who is born in the midst of Israel with a full horizontal genealogy, is nevertheless born from above. And so the virgin birth, which is what this story is often called, but it's really a story about the virginal conception. Right? The virgin conception is a sign of the divinity of Christ. So Justin was right. He does not have a human father. God is the father through the spirit. And thus the one conceived in Mary is called here, as Isaiah prophesied, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. And so here, with elegant simplicity, Matthew brings us to the central, staggering mystery of Christmas. Jesus of Nazareth is God. This is only boring for us, I think, because God himself has become boring. 
Jesus of Nazareth is God. He is not a holy man who reveals God. He is not one of many paths to God. He's not a manifestation of God. He's not a consecrated man that God uses in a very special way. T.F. Torrance, the great Scottish theologian, used to say, he is not God in a man. He is God as a man. And there's a world of difference in that. Jesus is not God in a man. He is God as a man. And thus, God with us in person. God eating and drinking and healing and teaching and assuming the risks and the agony and the contingencies of human existence. That's what incarnation means. That's what it means to be an incarnate people. Of course, God was always with his people in a general way through the Spirit. That same God now comes to us in a new and a permanent and a decisive way. This is the the glory, the Shekinah glory that hovered over the tabernacle, right? Over the ark, between the cherubim. It's that radiance become flesh. Now, everything Matthew knew as a first century Jew would mostly militate against him reporting this. This notion that Jesus is God. And yet it is, it is the astonished, and there is no theology without astonishment. There is no Christianity without being astonished or amazed or overawed by this event. Because this takes us into the heart of who Christ is and into the heart of who the triune God is. This is the astonished testimony of the whole church. John reports it, Paul reports it, Peter reports it, and they do so... Because our Lord himself continually, repeatedly demonstrates it and makes the claim about himself in his earthly ministry. Right? That's why you have John saying, what we saw, right? what we touched, what we handled with our hands concerning the word of life, who was in the beginning with the Father, that we have reported to you. Right? Throughout his whole ministry, Jesus keeps assuming exercising divine prerogatives and making these divine claims. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the one who is the faithful God of the Exodus. It's really scandalous. And it's shocking. And I think it's only our familiarity with the story that sort of you know, rubs the luster off it and causes us to yawn. In the words of J.I. Packer, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. There's nothing in fiction. Take the best fiction you can find. It's not as brilliant, as luminous, as mysterious, or nearly as interesting as this story. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic, Packer says, as the truth of the incarnation. Once one accepts this, he continues, there's really no difficulty accepting the rest of the Christian claims. The difficulties dissolve, he says. Herein, then, lies the drama. This is the drama, 
the unsearchable glory of Christmas. I'm reminded of uh, the, the British writer Dorothy Sayers who said of Christmas, the dogma is the drama. Right? It's not like, well, we have the incarnation and then a drama takes place. No, it's the mystery of the second person of the Trinity becoming flesh. It's the dogma of the incarnation, which she said, that is the drama of Christmas. The drama of Christmas is that it takes us up into the life of the triune God through the flesh of a man. The second person of the eternal Trinity has become flesh. Not the first person, not the third person, the second person, which is why one cannot properly confess who Jesus is without being a Trinitarian. It's not God in general who became man. It's the second person of the Holy Trinity. So what we have in Jesus is the incarnate, the enfleshed Son of the Divine Father. And that brings me to the second point, which is the human Father. God is the Father, but there is, in fact, a human Father. And the text highlights his struggle and his character. Joseph becomes aware of Mary's pregnancy. He's called Mary's husband in the text. He's he's said to be a righteous man, faithful to the law. He's called her husband, notice, because in this world, betrothal is essentially a legally binding state of affairs, much stronger than the modern-day idea of engagement, much, much stronger than that. It's virtually the same as being married. It It was a period of exclusive commitment, prior to consummating the marriage, but any infidelity would be considered as adultery, according to Jewish law. And indeed, it appears from this text that according to Jewish law, that divorce was mandatory in such a case. And so Joseph has this dilemma. He's a righteous man. He's merciful and kind as well. And apparently, he's free from jealousy and anger. He does not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, which here in the text means something like an open legal proceeding, probably. So he's got his reputation, Jewish law. They require, they require him to divorce her. But he wants to protect her dignity because she's in a situation that might prohibit her from ever marrying again in this culture. So what he decides to do is, all right, I'll do whatever's legally required, but I want to do it quietly, and I want to do it in private. And if you look at verse 20, it actually says he spent some time. He gave some consideration to this. And it's only then that an angel appears to him in a dream and says, and notice carefully what the angel says, Joseph, son of David. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the words son of David are critical. What they establish is the fact that Jesus will get his messianic credentials, if you will, through Joseph. That Jesus will be legally a descendant in the line of Joseph. And Mary, the angel continues, is to be Joseph's wife and give birth to a son, and Joseph is to name him Jesus. So he obeys, he takes Mary as his wife. But we're told at the end of the text, 
He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So there's two important things to note here. The first one is this. While it's not strictly necessary, right, uh, to not consummate the marriage, it, it ensures, it highlights the supernatural origin of the child. It will be clear that God, through the agency of the Spirit, not Joseph, is the child's father. The second thing that Matthew's trying to teach us here is this. This whole interaction with Joseph is designed to have him accept Mary and the baby as his own. And thus he becomes Jesus' adoptive father, making Jesus legally, through adoption, a son of David. So you can see what my young son was struggling with. It's a bit much to ask of a five-year-old. But what he needed to say was, God is his father. He doesn't have a biological human father. Now, if he had said that, we might have asked a couple questions. But this is what we wanted him to say, right? Theologically, God is his father. He doesn't have a biological human father. Joseph is his adoptive human father. Now, that's Christology for five-year-olds right there. You can see the, the frustration, but that's, that's how the Scripture parses this out for us. And the point here is that the one, the son of Mary and Joseph, is fully man. Right? He draws from Mary's flesh. He has an embryonic history. He has a gestational period. He has her DNA. He has a human birth and a human name, Jesus. So earlier we said, this is God as a man. Here we state the same truth differently and say, this is God as a man. This is God with us, one and the same Christ, fully human, fully divine. By the way, this paradox, this mystery puzzled the religious leaders. Forget five-year-olds. You can remember Jesus questioning them, saying, um, the, the Christ, is he David's son or is he David's Lord? And he quotes from Psalm 110. The answer is he's both David's son with respect to his human nature and he's David's Lord with respect to his divine nature. Right? And guess what? The Pharisees didn't get that right. So this, then, is this ineffable, unfathomable, luminous, glorious mystery that is Christmas. This is, in a sense, the heart, the epicenter, the place from which light radiates out into the whole Christian faith, into the whole Christian conception of existence and out into the world. So that brings me to the third point, which is the mission. Jesus' human name itself means the Lord saves. It's the Greek form of Joshua, and he's the new Joshua. So God is with us in Jesus, like uniquely, permanently, and forever with us to, as verse 21 says, save his people from their sins. That's a complete, full description of why he became flesh. We'd like to add other things to it. Or we'd like to just make that a preliminary. Yes, he saves us from our sins, but that's so we can do A and B and C and D. No, this is the whole description. 
saving you from your sins, from their deceit, from their power, from their bondage, from their implications. And that will be the work that goes on until you die and pass into glory. And that's why the Messiah came. So, so two things to note right here. First, he comes to save his people. That is the elect from every nation, starting with Israel. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. He gathers his people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He comes to save them. And he will save every last one of them. But secondly, notice this. He comes to save us from our sins. Not to save us from the Romans. right? Not to be a political, this worldly king. He deals with the root of the calamity, the human calamity, namely our sin, our disordered souls, our decaying mortal bodies. It's very important to get this. He comes to deliver us, if you will, from the eschatological wrath and judgment of God and to bring us into face-to-face communion with this same triune God revealed in Christ in glory. This is why the Messiah came. There's an echo of this. He came to save his people. He will save his people from their sins. There's an echo of it in Psalm 130, which says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. And then the next phrase says, He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And Matthew is echoing that. God himself will redeem Israel. So we have a mission. God is on a mission as the great missionary. It's a mission which no prior prophet, no prior priest, no prior king, no previous son of David could do. It is God himself coming in person to save from sin and from its ramifications, death and judgment. So this mission of God as a man to save us has two ramifications, and with these we will close. We'll call them crisis and comfort. So first, first then, Jesus, Christmas, is a crisis. It's a crisis because it confronts us with God himself, and this will be traumatic for human beings. There's a kind of sentimentality which has attached itself to Christmas, to the baby and to the shepherds and to the mother and all of that. There's a kind of sentimentality that numbs people that blinds us to what is happening and what it means. Christmas is a statement that Israel and the world lie in the thickest kind of darkness. They lie under the judgment of God. Advent begins in the dark. Christmas means things are desperate. Long lay the world in sin and error Pining. So Christmas, the advent, the appearing of the God-man to save us, confronts us with the ultimate things, the last things, the final things. Right? In the appearance of this baby, 
will provoke hostility, division, and ultimately deadly violence. And you know when it starts? It starts in the next verse of Matthew's gospel with Herod's reaction to the appearance of the wise men. Christmas means convulsion, and it means crisis. It means the end of all things is at hand. The final judgment is already underway. And even if you are already a believer, Advent is always for us a season of repentance, preparation, longing, newly focused urgency. For the one that we have to do with here is the all-seeing, all-knowing, coming one. The one who's already begun shaking everything that can be shaken. The one before whose face heaven and earth flee away. The God who appeared in fire on the top of Sinai, who is infinite in holiness, who is a consuming fire. So a thin conception of God and a shallow notion of the human predicament means that the staggering reality of the incarnation will bounce off of us. It makes no sense unless it's against the backdrop of a thick and mysterious conception of God and his glory and the crisis of the human condition. It's very dangerous, Christmas. Spiritually dreadful that people can go to church once a year and walk away from this news unscathed. If one fails to grasp the true state of things, of themselves, of the world, then one will not even begin to grasp the hope of Christmas, the comfort to which I want to turn now. Right? All of this happening in this way is the deepest comfort for us in our grief, in our sorrow, our fears, our darkness, our doubts, in our many sins and failures. Right? In our unhealed wounds. For God is not merely holy fire. Right? The holy fire that God is, is love. Utter, self-giving love. And the inner mystery of this transcendent God, this transcendent Lord, is seen in the Son. Who, we are told, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped a thing to cling to, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, a slave. So the God whose face no one can see and live has descended and in the virginal conception and birth has become a vulnerable and helpless baby. Without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be God, he takes on the form of a slave becoming obedient unto death, even the shameful death of the cross. So here we see clearly that God in his majesty stoops, right? He bends himself down. He manifests, if you will, his fiery glory precisely in his weakness, in his humility, and ultimately later in his humiliation. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thou who was God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became as man, stooping 
so low, yet sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. And so, in Jesus, God and man, God and man, come to save, to heal us. We can answer the question that was asked by that same Scottish theologian I mentioned earlier, T.F. Torrance. Once at the beginning of his ministry, during World War II, the question was asked to Chaplain Torrance by a wounded soldier with maybe 20 minutes left to live. And then later, at the end of his ministry, by a dying elderly woman in a hospital. Same question twice, separated by about 40 years. In times like this, all the questions we think are important vanish into air. I like to tell people all the interesting questions in the world are Christological questions. The rest of them, whatever. All the interesting stuff is right here. So you know what they asked? The dying soldier and the dying woman. They asked him this. Is God really like Jesus? Christological question. Because they harbored, as many still do, some dark secret fear of a hostile God behind the back of Jesus. Maybe some God who's not really like Jesus, who won't really receive them. And the good news, the gospel of this text, is that there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God as a man. God with a human face. God who in Christ has turned that face wholly, unreservedly, permanently toward us in saving love. This is Emmanuel with us, with you. Oh, unnerving. Tidings of comfort and joy. Amen.